Welcome to Ravel, a roundtable show about how faith gets complex with the vast amount of information at our fingertips. For some people, this complexity has caused the unraveling of their faith, and for other people, it's been liberating. Take us, for example. I'm Stephen. I'm Josh. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of the American Christian spectrum, and as some of our beliefs migrate, we still feel like our theology is in process. Theology always has fundamentally been, and will always be, an exploratory dialogue. That alone is proof that faith raveling doesn't have to be a crisis, even if it feels like it. We don't have all the answers, so we want to use this show to model what it can look like to genuinely sort through beliefs in real time. So share a drink with us as we pull on the thread of our own pressing questions. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, hello. Triple threat. Hello. Hello. We are, y'all, it's the last episode of January. How crazy is that? Yo. 2023. What, what New Year's resolutions did you guys fail this year? None, because I didn't make any. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really solid strategy. I don't believe in revolutions. What? Re- wait. What? <laughs> resolutions. I don't believe in resolutions. I believe in metanoia. I, I'm oh. changed from the, about the ground up. Wow, I'm not even a drink in. I've only started my drink and I can't talk. Well, that's nothing new. Um, Here we be. And uh, I want to know what you're drinking. Josh, maybe we should start with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm drinking a locally sourced brewed in Montana by the JJBC, the Jeremiah Johnson Brewing Company, Mountain Man, Shout Scotch out. Ale. Hashtag, please sponsor us. Your beer is so good. Like, this is <laughs> this is caramely. I'm sorry for everyone who is not in Montana because I don't think you can buy it. But it's mm-hmm. like caramely and rich. I brought back a big six pack from Montana on Thanksgiving. And you guys, it, it's so good. Like, I, I, like it sounds so cheesy singing its praises when this is not an ad. I'm not being paid to say this other than my spirit is being paid by this beer because wow. it's so good. Can you define what a big six pack is? Yeah, I was kind of wondering that too because he said Ooh, big and I was like, know, he grabbed a lot, but then he said six pack. So. Six pack, right. Is it larger cans or? Nope, nope, nope. Turns out um, that was just my brain. Doing okay. its thing because I'm I'm zoning out at how good this beer He's is. Too it's excited. really good. Fair. Um, Fair. I didn't realize until looking at the can that it has honey in the recipe. Sure does. And maybe that's that's what, what makes the, it so good. That's what the aftertaste maybe. is. I think it's it. made with love. That's the important distinction. Really, is like wonderful. it makes love. beers taste bad. I'm not even kidding. Like yeah. I've tried other Scotch ales and it has ruined them for me. Yeah. Um, sure. I'm also drinking because I've been trying to stay more hydrated recently. I've been doing a bad job at that. So I've been trying to like drink a hydrating drink with every alcoholic drink I drink. And I'm drinking an aloe vera and honey juice drink. Wait, do you, okay. Do you only try to stay hydrated when you're drinking alcohol? No, I've been trying to do it more in general, but like the okay. like alcohol doesn't exactly hydrate you. So no, you know, I'm it trying doesn't. to like counteract. No, Certainly okay. Does not. I just wanted to make that clear because it was sounding like you're only going to try to hydrate yeah. if you, like yeah. when you're drinking alcohol. But you don't drink alcohol all the time. So, but it's good to know you're staying hydrated. Steven, what about you? Yeah. My wonderful wife made me a decaf peppermint mocha. Aww. We have a little uh, milk frother here at home. 
And she drinks decaf coffee because she has ADHD and caffeine makes her tired. So she drinks decaf uh, for the experience of still drinking coffee. But she made it up all nice in one of my favorite mugs. And, oh, I should mention that the peppermint mocha syrup was homemade. She made it today Mm. and it's delightful. Yeah, she like straight up cocoa powder. She melted some candy canes straight into it. She tucked a candy cane on the edge of the rim of my mug today and it's just been slowly melting into the latte. It's just it's it's just wonderful. I love it so much and I love her so much. Steven. <laughs> Such a sap. What are I you, love it. What are you drinking, Emily? So I uh, am at the church recording, obviously, and I received from the Naomi Circle, which I'm a part of here at my church, a wonderful gift from my prayer partner that is a homemade hot chocolate bomb. And it is so good. It's a white chocolate, hot chocolate bomb. And it was wonderful because I poured hot water over it. And literally there was just an explosion of little tiny marshmallows and little like flakes of candy cane and white chocolate and hot cocoa powder. Mm. And it's warming up my heart because it's wonderful. It is wonderful. C4 detonation of delicious yes wow that was very nicely put yeah i go big with the metaphors you are you are a (laughs) yeah a sight to behold so um i did not get to introduce yeah necessarily sorry you know kind of y'all had to stole your thunder there you did but you know what it was essential it was necessary and thank you for having me back by the way you know we really missed you even though you weren't gone. We did. Um, that was that was a very uh, <laughs> humble time for us as a community to, you mm-hmm. know, like as you stepped back from your position, um, just to, you know, give you the space for healing. Yeah. A miracle, as it were. Uh, yes. Well done. So true. Um, so, without further ado, we are pleased to announce that we are having a topic submitted via DM, and I'm going to invite my wonderful friend, Josh, to read our message and get this episode rolling. Well, before I read our submitted question, do we have any announcements? Wow. Do we? Do we have any announcements? No announcements for the new year? I could say that anyone could submit a topic themselves using their voice if they would like to. They can call our number, 601-55-RAVEL, which is 601-557-2835, or email us a voice memo at theravelpod at gmail.com. In addition to that, I wanted to say that we are in the year of our Lord 2023, committed to releasing one bonus episode every month. So if that has been part of the holdout on joining our wonderful Patreon community, you could certainly do so. Patreon.com slash RavelPod. You'll get bonus episodes. But really, let's be honest, we're all here for the amazing Discord we have. This is true. Although we recently put out, I think we've put it out by now, we reviewed the movie The Finger of God, which inspired me to go to ministry school because it's all about a documentary on the supernatural. So if you support us, thank you. I hope you enjoy that episode very much. Indeed. So this week's question comes to us from one of our listeners over on Twitter. His name is Jonathan Wedge. Shout out to you, Jonathan. Thanks hey, for following. Jonathan, I, um, I like interacting with that guy on Twitter. He's cool. Yeah, I do too. He's great. Um, so his question is this. 
Since the creation and fall stories of Genesis seem mythical in many ways, does that undermine the gospel? Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis makes the claim that if creation and the fall, as we understand them, are just myths, so is our salvation. Since the whole idea of substitutionary atonement apparently hangs on the idea that in Adam, we all sin and die, and in Christ, we are made new and live. Can we still believe Jesus died for us if creation and the fall did not actually happen like that? Oh, my word. Um, Emily, I want your gut reaction right now. I need it. Yeah. Oofta. <laughs> Oofta. I think this is a great question because it dives, I think, right at the heart of what christianity is all about yeah probably classic nine answer um i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna take my balls off the fence and say yes wow (laughs) speaking of big metaphors i'm gonna say yes you can believe that jesus died for you even if creation in the fall did not literally happen yeah i i think i'm gonna agree with josh though also i can agree with emily because she kind of said a little bit of not a lot Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we've talked about atonement yes we've talked about that before for sure um, where we kind yes, of like tackled yes. quite a few of the I think there are like seven or eight popular atonement theories there be seven seven thank you substitutionary atonement being one of many yeah this this question of like a it comes down to like the action and birth and death and resurrection of a historical Jesus for some demands that whatever he's undoing is also historical. I think that's a pretty easy summation of it. Like I've been reading Francis Schaeffer a lot because I've been like book clubbing a, a series of his books with my dad. And that is basically Francis Schaeffer's take, who is, by the way, like he, he wrote a lot of stuff in the 70s and 80s and is kind of considered one of the fathers of modern day evangelicalism. Yeah, and his argument is like, well, if a historical Jesus wasn't doing anything to reverse something that was done historical, then what the heck is he doing? Enter the other atonement theories, I suppose. I would offer those, first of all. But also, I don't I don't think it even cheapens the idea of something substitutionary going on if Adam wasn't a literal person named Adam, or the fall didn't happen because a serpent deceived Eve. So, yeah, are you saying that, because I don't, if I remember right from our Spongebob Teaches Us the Atonement episode, I think that you don't believe in substitutionary atonement, correct? Or has that changed? It's changed slightly and subtly. Okay. Um, And it has changed in the sense of, like, I can appreciate what we're doing with the idea of substitutionary. Like, oh, how does one of my favorite pastors say it? I send my sins into Jesus on the cross so that he may live his life through me. It's kind of like that. I guess at the root of it is like there's a confessionary nature of like, I I appreciate something substitutionary going on because sometimes I feel extremely inadequate and I can, I'm humbled by the idea of the living God taking my place for something. Though mm. I don't think... Jesus was taking our place before the wrath of God. Like he wasn't taking the punishment that was coming from God and like 
standing between God, the father and us as a shield of some sort. Like I think Jesus is revealing what God has always been like. And it is natural for us to think that when we die and when we have suffering and all that, that it is God punishing us. But I, I think Jesus's work Mm. was showing that God was never like that. And we merely put that on God because that is how we are. So would you say that's more in line with scapegoat atonement theory? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Sure. So my question then is, are you saying that you do think you can believe in substitutionary atonement while also believing that the story in Genesis is not a literal depiction of history? Uh, Yeah, I'm saying you can. Or are you just saying like atonement in general? Uh, probably a little of both, honestly. Sure. I just, I, I'm, I'm not convinced by the argument saying that like historical action A requires it be an answer to historical action B. Historical being the operate, like, even if it is mythological, I think I can still accept what those atonement theories are doing, Mm -hmm. I guess. Emily, I'm curious what you see in this question as being like the, how did you put it? Did you say the pinnacle of like Christian thought or like something like that? What do you mean by that? It's the heart of Christianity as we know it, because. Just because it's like that important of a question? Absolutely. I think my brain is like on fire right now. One of the things that I'm thinking of in regards to this question is how are we seeing atonement, first of all, because how we see atonement is going to set up our understanding of the narrative that is creation and the fall. If we see it as being, hmm, I'm trying to pick, I'm trying to pick a theory that we have not already discussed uh this evening christus victor mm-hmm. oh okay my yeah. favorite my personal favorite even though you don't believe in it why is that your personal favorite if you don't believe it if i don't believe it no i do oh i see you're one of those that like believes all of them oh ah, well, okay is that not mm. possible i think the atonement is complex and mysterious enough no i'm just kidding i'm sure it's possible that they could all be beautiful facets upon the same diamond okay deal with that emily what do you want to do with that now <laughs> i wanna am i not allowed to do that my crystal my christology professor would be like if he died rolling in his grave right now wow so, so if you were going to use Christus Victor as your example, what would it so, be? So, let's see. So, if we have the theory of Christus Victor, then the idea of creation in the fall would basically be that Christ was emphasizing the triumph over the evil powers of this world. So in the creation story, that is setting up the ultimate evil being unleashed through the fall. That being death, correct? That being death, yes. And so now we have the ultimate hero, that being Christ, conquering death. Amen. So basically, how you see atonement is going to influence how you see the story of creation Mm, and the fall. Okay, so now do substitutionary atonement oh let's see how does that Uh, set up genesis for you so we are asserting under this theory that jesus died quote for us in place of us Mm -hmm. 
So basically, Adam and Eve were taking the fall, not taking the fall. They were they were setting up the fall in place of creation later on in life rather than letting humanity fail later on. It's almost as if the fall happened earlier than it could have. And Adam and Eve were doing it in place of us. Yeah. One thing that sticks out to me about Jonathan's question, and I don't think that he believes this necessarily, but I think he's just like asking it because I think it's a very interesting question to press into that like someone like Ken Ham would say, well, if the if we're going to believe that the creation story is more mythological rather than literal, then that like logically, quote unquote, presupposes or like uh, infers that the Jesus story is also that way. And then that mm-hmm. would mean that our salvation is false or a story. And honestly, I think that there's like way too many logical jumps in there. But also, Josh, wouldn't you say, yeah. Because, like, on a resurrection episode... No, I don't think I would. Really? Oh. Well, go ahead. I want to hear what you're saying. Well, because I thought that your position would have been, give me a mythological Genesis story, because I think you you hold that it's possible that Jesus and even the resurrection was mythological as well. Yeah, I do. I do happen to believe that it's very, very possible, in my mind, that even the story in the gospels and the resurrection account is meant to be more mythological and story driven rather than taken as a literal historical narrative. So even though I like believe that about multiple parts about the Bible, I still think it's possible to view the Genesis story as that way, but not the gospel accounts, if that makes sense. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at, even though I'm not there. You're okay with the mismatch. Yeah, I th- I don't think it's inconsistent at all. Like, ooh, oh man, I was about to justify myself, and then I was like, oh man, do I actually think that? <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> um, because like part of what I want to say is like, I I think that there's there's several spots in the Old Testament that are like very disprovable, but then there's also other spots in the Bible that are not quite as disprovable, but they're also not provable. Mm-hmm. D- like did Paul write that letter to the Romans how many of the Roman church people read it like we don't know like that's not a thing that we can like really find out usually through archaeology and like I-, I think that there's a for lack of a better word I'm going to call it a bias I think that there is a bias that exists that ass- oh man oh shoot you guys I'm tying myself <laughs> up in knots here I feel like everything I try to say I like almost immediately counteract myself in my head so I'm just gonna say this <laughs> I think that there's a bias that exists that assumes that things in the New Testament are more reliably historical than the things in the Old Testament mm. but I also don't think that that is an inconsistent logic like we are closer time wise to the events of the time period in the New Testament Man, I'm obviously not an archaeological expert, but like I would assume that those kinds of things are easier to discover than the things that are allegedly from the time of the earlier parts of the Old Testament being written. And so I, I don't think it's like, I, I don't think, I would not call someone's faith inconsistent, I guess, if they like felt like some parts of the Bible were metaphorical and mythical in nature and are meant to be that way on an authorship level. 
and other parts of the Bible are arguably historical or close enough. Mm. I like that. I can appreciate that. Emily, I, uh, what you were saying about the, the idea of the like substitutionary atonement leads you to a Genesis interpretation of like, so in the same way that like Jesus would like die in our place or die for us, that sets us up for like Adam sinning in our place or sinning for us effectively. And like, and like basically dooming us to a life within the epic of the universe that is called the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you're aware you are basically reciting the argument of Romans five. Yes. (laughs) Right. Okay. Which is very, I love it. I love it. I got to be a guest on one of my favorite podcasts ever called trans regret Snoopy presents the Bible. And Ariel and I did a Bible study on Romans five. It was like, it was a peak experience for me. Beautiful. But what came out in that conversation with the, and that what I appreciated so much was it doesn't even seem inconsistent in Paul's view to have multiple, not even interpretations of, or just recognizing that the atonement is so mysterious that it can be all of these things at once. Oh yeah. In in a very beautiful way, because like, I think both the Christus Victor and the substitutionary way you treated them just now, like I think that sets up like pretty much what my theology is. Like death is the ultimate enemy that Mm -hmm. was invited in through the disobedient action of maybe a historical person. Maybe it's a myth, but that is, it's trying to put language to our experience of like, why does the world decay around us? And why do things we love die? Why is there suffering? Like why, do the bad Mm -hmm. things happen and death being the ultimate enemy, I think is a perfect way of interpreting that. I also love though, that the theology can be like Adam doomed us all to die. So here's my universalist take for the episode. So Jesus can die for all of us to live, you know? Yeah. And just cause my Christology professor would be rolling in his grave. Doesn't mean I would, I am. You're on board. Yeah. Don't worry. You're in good company. I, I think it's worth saying Shoot. <laughs> I guess it's just my opinion. <laughs> what is a podcast, but not just our opinions? What is, yeah, what is a podcast, but just opinions floating in the ether of the internet? <laughs> what is a podcast, but saying words? Um, so I am of the opinion that like in similar to like our resurrection episode where I like wanted to highlight the storiness of the resurrection. And I think that that's so important. And I think it gets skated over. I think that the whole concept of like hearkening back to the story of Genesis as an interpretive lens for Jesus as a concept, like even if we're like, we're not even going to talk about salvation yet, but just like as a, like a connection to the story. I think it's important to like talk about the storiness of that. Like whether you call it foreshadowing or like a, or just like a literary reference, like you, you are referencing a story and you're making a connection about like a, either a current event or another part of a story and I think that that doesn't get talked about much because like if you really dug into like the literalness of in Adam, we all sin. Like, what does that mean? Are you, are you saying that like there's a Calvinist view that says that Adam is the one who caused me to sin and I had no choice over that? Hmm. Or like, like, what are you talking about mechanistically? That is 
what some people would say the the more if you but if you press someone on that they would not be able to answer that because it is not a literal thing that you're talking about you're talking about a story and that's okay that's important the more generous take is that adam kicked the little snowball that started rolling down the hill and now i'm just caught up in this snowball metaphor again it's still metaphor that's like i'm telling (laughs) a new story to interpret the old story (laughs) but it's yeah it's like Adam made the choice that I would masturbate when I was 13. Like, <laughs> I don't think so. Exactly. Exactly. But they would say like, God made you do it. No, God didn't make me do it. It's just that I am prone to act like that because of what Adam did to me. Like I am just, it's more like collateral damage downrange. Very downrange. Yeah, but again, the the action that Adam committed to you was spiritual. So therefore, it's not like something that we can physically measure, right? Like it's not scientific. It is a spiritual story. And I think that just gets like lost sometimes. Oh, yeah. So that's why I think that that's why I think that it, it does not like opinions about creation or Jesus story aside. Like I, I actually don't think it matters to talk about those as much as it does to like talk about the story that it's referencing in that like the, it's like trying to trace a spiritual genealogy of this is where we've come from. This is where we are now. This is the hope for the future. This is our experience of the world. This is how we think we could describe it or explain it, you know? Cause I, I like that even embedded in the creation and the fall story is like, we all know that the world is messed up, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. But also, it must must not be this way, like on purpose. Mm, yeah. You know, I like that the creation story mm. sets us up with it is good, 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 it is very good. Like I like, <laughs> I like that we're set up for that, and that there's a vision of like things are bad now, but there must have been something that we lost along the way. You know, like. I don't know if I like that because it it kind of helps inform like what a lot of people think like the afterlife would be like or something like that. Like it provides a nice bookend to be like things were good, things were messed up. I don't know. Like, but why can't at one mint be good? Like that's essentially like that's what it that's what it's all about. Is it being good? Oh, and like the at one mint. Kind of like what you're saying is like now you can look back and be like, oh, it was always this way. Action, reflection, action. (laughs) Oh. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, Don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. 
Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. Can you say more about that, Emily? So if we're looking at action, reflection, action in regards to creation, fall, salvation, creation, action, we were at one with God. All was right in the world. Everything was as it should be. Then we had this incident called the fall. Now we're reflecting. Now we're working through all of Mm. this, trying to learn the error of our ways, trying to make sense of why all these things happen, what are what is going to happen in the future, trying to make sense of our trajectory. And then action being salvation would be we are at one again. And the fact that it's basically it's the fact that payment or harmony being restored through an act like that's secondary. It's the fact that we're just at one now, again, with God Mm. being salvation. That is action, reflection, action through the lens of creation, fall, salvation. So how would you talk about then the idea of like, this sounds so minimizing, but like, great, Jesus died and rose again, but it doesn't seem like he fixed all that much. (laughs) (laughs) His stuff is still really messed up. What What if we're still in the reflection part? Right. Which is what I'm like. There is the Christian theology of like, that is the seal on the promise for what comes later. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that gets you straight to like revelation and eschatology and end times and like premillennial, postmillennial kind of stuff of like, (laughs) the claim is that the most miraculous thing that has ever happened on the earth, that is a good man was put to death and was resurrected. Like, that wasn't the completion of it. That was merely like the promise of it. That was the catapult. The catapult. So now it's all just sailing through the air. Why not? That would explain why it's kind of scary. Why not? Still. Um, and then, so then the full deliverance of it is whatever we want to think about, like our futures after death or through death, rather. Mm-hmm. Christians like to talk about going through death instead of mm-hmm. just dying now, right? Well, yeah, because we don't we don't remain in death. We don't linger in death because death is defeated. We are an Easter people, so yeah, mm. yeah. Does that make? That's sense? my jam. I'm so into that. Okay. Yes, please. I okay. want all of that. That 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 kind of that's the stuff that is like that keeps me Christian. I think honestly because that's why you should be a Methodist. And then okay, con- to continue to speak in terms of story because I loved mm-hmm. Josh's earlier point. I think. It's so, I don't know if myopic is the word. It seems so short-sighted or like fixating on a tree for the forest to say that the story can't just be the story and provide meaning to you. Like we must insist on some historicity or else the whole house crumbles. Because like I can talk about how I think it deserve it quite honestly deserves to be scripture in my mind is when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in the mouth of Sam, does this mean that everything sad will now become untrue? Like that story means so much and that has had a tremendous impact on how I view the world. Hmm. I don't think Sam ever lived. I don't think Sam was actually part of history. Yeah. Like it's funny that you mentioned that because my 
I've been like, I'm not even a huge Lord of the Rings nut like you are. Guilty. But I've had Lord of the Rings stuck in the back of my mind this whole time in that like, like in Sauron we sinned and in Gandalf we were saved. (laughs) But like nobody... But like we're like nobody's debating if Lord of the Rings is oh, just a story because like we recognize it as such. We recognize it as such because, admittedly, we do have a much shorter window between when that author was writing and alive. <laughs> um, right. But also, like Lord of the Rings is a an especially interesting point because Tolkien always said that he wrote about Middle Earth as if it was the real history of England and Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. So we're okay with... But nobody's out there saying, <laughs> I'm saved by grace through faith in, in, Gandalf. in Gandalf. Yeah. Okay. And that's fair. I think that the... I think that the, as much as I like to highlight the story, I do see the quandary of people preaching salvation through Jesus and the potential problem of if we admit that it's a story, then it's subject to just being called Lord of the Rings. And so many people do like so many people do criticize the Bible as just fairy tales. And honestly, I think that's a lazy argument for lots of reasons, but, but I, I don't think that it, I, I don't think that it discounts the meaning that it can have for people because like it fundamentally, it is different having a religious story and framework than it is just having a, a story written for fiction. Yeah, for sure. Though I would say that I think it requires a lot more imagination to treat the Bible as it ought to be. And also don't discredit the actual fiction that much. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> to say like, Oh, well if, if I lose the historicity, then the Bible isn't as, is just as good as Lord of the Rings. It's like, okay, is that okay though? Like, <laughs> no, no, I agree. No, it's uh, see. I'm on that side, but like, I understand someone who feels threatened by, mm. if I say that I believe that the gospel accounts are primarily mythological and maybe some of the events happened. I I can understand why that someone feels threatened by me saying that they're fool. I think people often interpret that very personally and take that as I believe you're foolish for Mm -hmm. believing that Jesus was literal and died for your sins. And through the death of him on the cross, somehow mechanistically Mm -hmm. like saved you from eternal death and suffering. Like to put to make Emily's point again, like make you an Easter person, and I'm not. Hmm, I'm just kind of sitting in that because I, I'm not really sure what I would do there. Like, but I think that that's part of the reason why I don't like. I don't want to hit it too heavy on my opinions about that because, like, I don't. I, I don't see the good in arguing with people about that. Like, I feel safe talking about it with people like you like they want to talk about these things but like even if i stray further away from orthodoxy i don't know if i will ever be convinced that i should like apologetically argue against the historicity of christianity at least to someone's face maybe i'll still like put a podcast out there you'll still tweet about it for sure (laughs) maybe maybe (laughs) hmm you guys want to talk about the fall some more? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. Um, what is it? What do you think? <laughs> what do you think about it? I've been actually stewing on this quite a bit, but I, I want to hear from you two first before I put out my theory. I don't like how we label, categorize, identify 
it as the fall it just sound i just don't like how that sounds it's very abrupt well yeah and it's it's there's something harmful and it's i don't think it's intentional but it invokes something within me that forces me to see this whole thing this whole situation as if i fall or if i have fallen then I have a choice as to whether or not to get back up. Oh. And how then is Jesus Christ a part of that? Because in some light, if I were to go down the angle of saying, I have fallen, I'm choosing to not get up because of Jesus Christ. Christ will pick me back up. It takes me out of a sense of responsibility. But at the same time, this idea of I can get back up is Christ then really essential in this whole story. Like I that. Yeah, that was the first thing that we called that came to my we mind. We called that in youth group the the problem of works based salvation. <laughs> oh. You can't Jordan Peterson yourself out of this one, kid. Yeah, it's oh. true. <laughs> the way I make sense of it and. I think I've thought of it this way for a long time, but I honestly don't know if I've put it into words before, but I I think it absolutely makes sense that the story of Genesis is making sense and putting a narrative on the human experience of the suffering and the imperfectness of life and our inability to control it, and that we, in a lot of cases, did nothing to deserve it on our own, but also reap the consequences of our own suffering choices. Mm-hmm. In addition to, I, I think that the book, I, I, I really think that the book of Genesis just gets misinterpreted a lot. Like I, for instance, I think a lot of people don't know that it's also making social cultural commentary on other foundation myths. What's the word for that? Creation myths for other creation myths at the time, like the Enuma Elish and the, yeah, uh, the Babylonian. No God. The no God had to die for us to have a world in our version. Yeah, but then God does die later. So, <sighs> okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, gotcha. I guess. <laughs> but I it's think the that idea that's like, of God wanting to die. Yeah, for it's us. not like we're born out yeah. of the blood of Osiris or whatever. You know, right? Well, yeah, we're not born out of violence and sex. And violent sex inherently like other creation myths. And so I think that I think that the book of Genesis often gets talked about, specifically the creation story gets talked about as if it exists in a vacuum and mm. nothing else mm-hmm. came before it because it literally starts with in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So like I think that we tend to read it with a bias in yeah. time. Um what was the question? What do we think of the book of Genesis, <laughs> creation, the fall? No, what do you think about the fall specifically? The fall, oh, yeah. I don't think that there was an actual literal event that Genesis is pointing to in regards... I, I don't think that's the point, frankly. That, that's why I don't mm-hmm. believe it. It's not just because I don't believe in the book of Genesis. It's because I don't believe that that is what the book is trying to do. Yeah, And I, I don't think that it's pointing to a literal circumstance where humans disobeyed God over one thing and God was henceforth forced to curse humanity. Uh I think that it is a 
very creative, highly commentary-filled narrative on the human experience. Amen. I like that. Yeah, I've been stewing on the fall for a while, um, kind of informed by some thoughts that uh, Marv gave us when he was a guest on Ravel back when Emily had Thea and was on maternity leave. Um, we talked a, a lot about like science and faith and especially Genesis uh, comes up. And then like thinking of the creation narrative, like the way I've been sitting with it for quite a while is it describing the essential like process of evolution as we see it. Like, I think you could probably just sum it up as saying like, I'm probably a theistic evolutionist, but well, not, but, and I think thinking of like, we're reading about these days, right. Of creation and whether you want to interpret that as like stretched out, like a nondescript amount of time or call it an epoch or something like that. Like this is how the world came about. And this is the, these are the patterns we're picking up on. I really like that. And beginning to think of the fall in the same way is like, I agree, Josh. I don't think there was a moment where like in the snap of a finger or in like the crunch of an apple that was the fall. Like, I think the fall was gradual and I think the fall is really just paying attention to the physical law of entropy and acknowledging that decay happens and that things don't naturally get better, at least according to our definitions of better and worse. Like I've noticed as a homeowner that things don't repair themselves. They only break. (laughs) Like they only get worse. Like, my laundry doesn't clean itself. It gets dirty. Right. And just those observations of like, Oh, this, this is going to take work. And I think there's a lot of theology of work in Genesis that doesn't get enough credit. Like how work wasn't actually part of the curse. It was just like increasing the toil or something. And the pain, the pain, increasing the pain of childbirth and all those things. But really I think the fall was, I think it's it's one thing to call the fall. I would probably call it when our species realized that it was thinking, had a thought that it was thinking, or like realized consciousness. And also, I think what the story shows us is like, once you realize you are conscious, and once you realize you are naked, then you know you're vulnerable. And when you know you're vulnerable, and what you look like when you're vulnerable, and you see another person that kind of matches what you're like, Right. Like this is the differentiation that you see in Genesis of like male and female. He created them like I'm a naked man. That's a naked woman who looks extremely like me. And because she's naked, I also know what makes her vulnerable because I feel vulnerable right now. And I think the moment that, you know, vulnerability in another human being is when you can exploit that for your own gain. And I think that's sin to exploit other people. And the rest is history, as they say. I think that this is going to go high level for a second for me. I think this is a great example of why normal people need to have theological conversations and why everyone should see theology as accessible and dialogic. I don't think that's a word. Dialectical? There you go. Nope, that's not the right thing either. But yes, I also think theology is dialectical. Um, But like the, the conversationality of theology because while I do think that some things are wrong (laughs) like interpretive or 
opinions. <laughs> I think opinions can be wrong a lot. I think it's these kinds of conversations that either show us truth or like show us the point of what we're reading eventually. I mean, I, I think that's still kind of a controversial take in some circles that like you should talk about the theology you believe. And I don't think it should be controversial. <laughs> I think that that's what gets us to truth. Amen. Any hot takes about uh, the relationship of the creation and the fall and Jesus at the end? I guess my only hot take is that I think I almost feel sad that I felt like I wasn't allowed to play with my theology as much growing up. Kind of to your point, Josh, of just like having these kind of conversations, like I think I was scared to think of the the Bible in general, but especially these stories. I was afraid to think of them in any other way than the way they were taught to me because I didn't want to disappoint my teachers. Yeah, totally. And I think I'm just kind of grieving that right now of like, huh, I, uh, I'm sad for that younger Steven. <laughs> Cause like I, I now think that I am in a, uh, a much more life giving place and a far less anxious place because I'm not worried about the historicity of Adam or the 24 hour creation days or whatever. Like I can, I can hold all that loosely and I can experience love in a community where we disagree on those things, but by the fact that we hold all of those things loosely together is what makes us hold onto them at all. I don't know. It's, it's very, it's a very, uh, tender place to be, I guess of like, like I'm trusting you guys that you don't just like turn this around on me in a couple of years and be like, see, this is why he's a heretic. We're going to excommunicate him. He's gone. It's done. It's, it's over with us. <laughs> you know, like I like that. I like when theology is playful like this. Yeah. I don't know if that was a hot take, but that's what I have for the end. I think I'm stewing on what's the point of it all. And mm. I mean that in a like a positive way. Because if let's say at the end of it all it was all a myth, the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, creation, the fall, Jesus and salvation, if it was all a myth, if it was not true, if it was not historically accurate, at the end of the day, would I be upset? What was the point of it all then if it was not historically true or accurate? Well, the point of it was to point me in a direction of how to best live my life in a way that's not selfish, but in a way that's selfless, not self-gratifying, but gratifying for others in a way that's paying it forward and being justice oriented and being merciful and being compassionate. Because if I need to live my life in a way like that, solely because it is historically accurate, solely because it's all true, then fiction like Lord of the Rings, like Harry Potter and things of that, like, then there would be no reason to have those things other than for entertainment. But I think those things provide something valuable, like life lessons, <laughs> like giving us models of how we can be in the world. So 
if my interpretation of creation, fall and salvation changes 10 years from now, the point of it is still going to remain that I can still learn something from it and I can still live my way as being a life-giving, caring, selfless individual to ensure that creation thrives and all those who are God's children know that they're loved. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, To piggyback off of what you're saying, because I completely agree with that, there's this Twitter user, his name's Preston Ship, and he went pretty viral on Twitter a couple months ago for asking the question, which I really love. The way he phrased it was something along the lines of, how would your faith change if you discovered that Jesus did not literally rise from the dead? Like if there was actual proof that Jesus did not. Like very thought experimenty, very like hypothetical, like use your imagination, like how would that actually impact you? And he got a lot of interesting responses. Um, But what I really love about that question is I think it's very scientific. And I think that what it, it begs the reader and the listener to think about is if you have a... I think it's a very scientific approach to theology in the sense of if you have a theological religious hypothesis based on some data and you realize that some of that data you were misinterpreting or you didn't have the full picture... That doesn't necessarily mean you should throw out the data. That just means that that hypothesis was false. So now what do you do with the data? And I feel like that's exactly what Emily is getting at. Like, it, like just because we realize that a, a conclusion or a preconceived notion was incorrect, that doesn't mean that the data is falsified. Mm. Or even if the data, if something was incorrect in the data, like what needs to be cleaned up? Because it, it's not like, in science, data isn't just like, just because it doesn't prove a hypothesis or just because like some of the data has limitations or is incomplete or needs to be cleaned up or it's corrupted data, like that doesn't mean it's all useless. So like what is useful in the data still that can lead you to the truth? And I think that's, I think that's a great perspective to have about things like this in theology, like all of these things, like whether it's like the atonement or... Uh, creation and salvation, uh, the historicity or not of stories, like it's all getting at something. Like the the point of the Bible is not, did Jesus literally die on a cross, or did the flood literally happen? Like that's not the point, and I think that's important. think that was our benediction right there oh amazing (laughs) great